You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I welcome back to the show Ben Claremont and Eugene Robin from Cove Street Capital. We quickly touch on the performance of Lumen Technologies, a stock they pitched back on our show in December of 2020, whose price subsequently has risen 50% in Q1. But the real reason I brought back Ben and Eugene was to discuss the race for space and their position in Viasat. If you only follow the headlines, you'd think that Elon Musk is on an unencumbered path to space domination, especially with his satellite business under SpaceX called Starlink. In this episode, we cover how Viasat might currently be wildly underappreciated by the market, how Starlink compares to Viasat and the future of satellite broadband, their intrinsic value of Viasat, and much, much more. I love doing deep dives into stocks with Ben and Eugene because they are truly value investors. It's also worth mentioning that Eugene once worked at Viaset and has a deep knowledge on the business. So sit back and enjoy learning from Ben and Eugene about how Viasat, in more ways than one, might be heading for the stratosphere. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie. And today, I have back with me Ben Claremont and Eugene Robin, principals at Cove Street Capital. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be back. Well, I couldn't wait to talk to you guys because last time you were here, about mid-December of 2020, we were talking about Lumen Technologies. And at that time, the stock was trading somewhere around $10.50 a share. And after we aired that episode, it surged about 50% to a close of 15 to 15 and a half. And now it's drifted back down to somewhere around $13. So I have to ask, what are your thoughts quickly about the surge? And how are you guys feeling about the stock today? So when we spoke, Lumen had been under a fair amount of pressure. I mean, there's no way to know for sure, but we think that it was kind of a victim of the end of year tax selling to some degree as people didn't have a whole lot of losses and Lumen was down. And so it got sold down pretty hard towards the end of the year. And then I guess serendipitously, it got caught up in the GameStop kind of rush where people saw that it was heavily shorted and thought that maybe it could be the next GameStop. It didn't end up being quite that. And we actually sold a little bit above 16. And then we promptly bought it right back. So thank you, Mr. Market and your irrationality for giving us that opportunity. But to be frank, some of the gap between what we perceive to be intrinsic value and the stock price has closed, but nowhere near where, you know, to, to make it anywhere near fair value. The truth of the matter is there have been a number of fiber transactions that would be good comparisons for the Lumen business side slash level three, the old level three business. And they're suggestive of a much higher value for this company. And even a company like Cogent, which is a public company, trades at like 20 times EBITDA. And has a very similar business model to to Lumen's business uh, services side, and you know it's twenty times for for Cogent and five times for what all, every all of Lumen just doesn't make sense to us. And the fact is, since we've spoken, Southeastern, which is one of the largest shareholders and has filed a thirteen D, has continued to push the company to highlight the value of its various assets. One of the a sell side analysts reported that the company has hired bankers to look at selling the consumer business. You remember from our original podcast, that was one of our, our, our premises. 
is that they would separate these two businesses. So honestly, things are in motion. I think people need to be patient, but they get paid to wait because the dividend yield is like, I think, six, seven and a half or 8% still. So our conviction about Lumen really hasn't changed. And we continue to scratch our heads regarding the discount between comparable transactions and what we think the fiber's worth and what the stock trades at. So a lot to unpack there. First of all, you mentioned you guys sold a little bit, bought some back as it fluctuated. What net-net, where you guys kind of sit? Is it back to where you were and just took some money off the table? Or you know, have you kind of de-risked a little bit more? No. I mean, I can just talk about the strategy that I co-managed where it's our largest position. It went from a 10% position to a 15% position because of that. And so from a risk management perspective, I looked in the mirror and talked to our, my co-manager, who was our founder about this. And the question was, if it was a 10% position at $8 and it's a 15% position at 16 what is a proper risk management thing to do? And our perspective is you take some money off the table because if the gap between intrinsic value would close to some degree, and so you take a little bit off to risk manage, and then the stock promptly fell back. So it's still a 10% plus position. That kind of raises another question, which is, you know, as far as rebalancing, is 10% sort of the optimal range for you guys for any one holding? This is an outlier. We look at this as a special situation. We think that the writing is on the wall that these, these assets are being separated. And the company has not come out and said so, but everything we see points to that. So I would say periodically, we are concentrated investors and we will take larger swings. Typically, our position sizes are two and a half. Five and seven and a half, ten percent is the only, this is the largest position we've ever had. It speaks to our conviction. It speaks to the amount of work we've done. It speaks to our understanding of what's going on, you know, with management internally. Could there be other ten percent positions in the strategy's future? Absolutely, but I mean, I would say this is not quote unquote normal for us. This is a big, calculated, very asymmetric bet in our mind. For those who are new to this discussion, I encourage you to go back to our episode number 326, where we really go deep on Lumen and you can kind of get a feel for the company. Something at the end of our discussion was really interesting because somehow we brought up Viasat, which is another one of your largest positions, I believe. And we started just talking about it casually and how Elon and Starlink have kind of entered the space as a competitor to Viasat. Now, I'm a longtime fanboy of Elon Musk, and I follow his companies pretty closely. And he seems to have this unstoppable advantage in the race for space domination, given his fleet of reusable rockets that he can launch at will for a discount. And he's now introduced Starlink, which is this constellation of satellites to beam down broadband all over the world. And they already have hundreds of satellites in orbit. So from my outside perspective, it appears that he's only a short time away from producing billions of dollars worth of new revenue through this internet service. So why am I saying all of this? Well, basically because you guys hinted that the fact that Viasat, which is the stock that we are spotlighting today, is a vastly superior company to SpaceX and Starlink in this initiative. And that really caught my ear. And I've been wanting to learn more about it ever since. Now, I wish I had kind of listened to you at the time when you mentioned that because it was trading around $30 a share and it's now shot up to 60 and drifted back down to about 50s as of today, the low 50s. But I want to definitely spotlight this stock because I think that's news to a lot of people who are very familiar with the Elon Musk PR machine and maybe have only really heard about Starlink. 
let's take the opportunity to learn about Viasat. And I'd just like to start with a quick overview of Viasat and how it makes money. Let's start there. So I'm going to give a spoiler, immediate spoiler alert, and then I'm going to pass it to Eugene to answer the, really the meat of your question. SpaceX has done incredible things with the launch technology. And Starlink has a pole position to be really successful in a lot of rural broadband applications. But the truth of the matter is, in five, three to five years, Viasat is going to be an in-flight Wi-Fi and military connectivity-focused company. Rural broadband will be a competitive market where Viasat will have assets that can compete, not necessarily with fiber, but with whatever, whatever Starlink offers. And it will be a competitive market just like you know, DSL was, just like if you're in Los Angeles and there are three or four different fiber providers that you can touch, it will be competitive. But the success of Viasat over the next three to five years will be based on their ability to penetrate in-flight Wi-Fi globally and offer connectivity to the military that does not exist today, expanding the total addressable market well beyond what other people are even considering now. And now I'll hand it to Eugene. I, I just wanted to clarify one thing. I do not want for people to think that anyway, we believe Starlink is an inferior product to Viasat's uh, current Exceed product. I just want to say that and, and also preface what I'm going to say with the following that I believe Elon will be the only person that's successful within Leo, barring you know Bezos throwing $20 billion at the problem. Because obviously, if you have an unlimited checkbook, I think you could do whatever you want, really. Leo meaning lower Earth orbit, right? I just want to spell that out for people as well. Yes. Sorry. I try to avoid acronyms. The low Earth orbit. So Jeff Bezos is also kind of in the game with Kuiper. That's his constellation. Certainly, if you really want to talk about advantages, I think he probably has the best one, which is money. It's almost an infinite... It's a rounding error for him, really, um, as opposed to Musk as well as uh, you know, Biasad. So I just want to say that up front, like, I really do believe that they will be successful. I think that he's already successful, let's put it that way. They'll be a part of the pie that's controlled by the Leo lower orbit operators. And they'll be a part of the pie that's controlled by the geo or geostationary satellite operators like Viasat. That's really how you have to think about it. It's unfortunate, but people think this is like a zero-sum game where there's going to be a winner-takes-all sort of thing where Elon's kind of advanced uh, space capabilities allow him to win the entire pie. It's impossible for many, many, many reasons, which I'll kind of touch on. But to answer the question that you posed initially, which was how does Viasat make money? I kind of want to rewind the clock a little bit and I will give the disclaimer that once upon a time I had a real job and I was a software engineer and I actually worked at Viasat when I graduated from the school. So when I was there, the part of the business that I worked in was the network systems group. And the actual core of Viasat from its founding has been within encryption and decryption technology specifically for the military. So this isn't a company that all of a sudden woke up and said, hey, you know what we should do is get into military applications. They've always been there. That's been the core moneymaker from day one. They've actually been the displacer in that space. Mark Dankberg created a, a more advanced and niche product set within encryption and decryption specifically for inline network communications for the military. And slowly over time, they became, you know, they went from startup to disruptor to now a dominant player within that space for the DoD. 
So that's actually how the core of how they make money is that defense side. And then actually, uh, most people, when they look at the company, because all the glitz and glamour and you know headlines and all that is specifically on the residential broadband, they skirt over this, what we consider to be a diamond in the rough or the true jewel, which is the defense side. And it's due to the defense side's high cash flow generative capabilities, Vice has been able to develop everything else that they have. So that's actually the core of how they make money. In conjunction to that, what they have is really a, a communications equipment business, which they sell ground network equipment to other satellite providers, actually. And so that's the one thing that's really interesting because I think space tech is in this really interesting revolutionary kind of flowering point where you know we're actually in El Segundo and behind me, there's probably three dozen startups right now and all the large defense contractors that are in space. So we're at the, in the epicenter of it. And as more and more money flows to it, the Viasat will actually benefit on the communication equipment side because most people don't have the 25-year track record of building space-reliable equipment that Viasat does, whether that be the antennas or the ground station network equipment or some of the, uh, the more nuanced things that go into satellites. So that's one of the ways that they also make money. And then the other one, obviously, is the let's call it the satellite service society, which is, I think, you know, where most people are kind of fixated on. So that's the residential broadband. They do that through their exceed service, or I don't know if they still call that, let's call it that anymore. But, and then they have in-flight Wi-Fi. So if you ever flown on JetBlue or American, that's actually all powered by Biosat. It used to be powered by this called GoGo, which again, if anyone's ever flown and used GoGo, it's one of the worst services I've ever imagined. And then, so the device had displaced them. In fact, I think it's public now. So Delta officially signed on to have their entire fleet be switched over to Viasat through 2022, I believe. Anyway, so they have in-flight Wi-Fi. Then they have, call it community Wi-Fi, but it's actually, it's a really interesting little niche business that they don't talk about as much. But if you go to Mexico or parts of Brazil now, they actually have these waypoints that they put in, in rural, very poor areas that they can beam down satellite connectivity to. And from that waypoint, it actually distributes connectivity to folks that can maybe pay a dollar a day, roughly, for internet access. And they actually provide a, a, a scaled, cheap connectivity solution for folks that cannot get connectivity around the world. And lastly, you know, due to their acquisition of, of RigNet, they'll have a maritime business, which is both offshore oil derricks. They have you know, um, tankers, cruise liners, things like that. They all need connectivity. So when you're out in the middle of the ocean, obviously you're far away from any sort of wireless connectivity capabilities, and you need people now want to be connected all the time. So Biosat will be that bridge. So that's kind of like the I'm trying to go quickly over it, but the, that's the satellite services side. So those are like the three, I guess, legs of how Biosat truly makes money. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. 
The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. That's Coriant.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Viasat's revenues are only a couple of billion dollars right now, but it seems like the satellite industry globally and connectivity and some of these other industries you mentioned that they're playing in, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, right? So as far as market share goes, how do they kind of fit into the landscape? What would you say? Are they dominating on the, obviously on the US government space? Do they have sort of a uh, monopoly on that business? Like, Just give us an idea of like, their position in the space overall. So let's start with the government system side. So if you look at their government revenue, they have about what's called, I'm just rounding up, 1.1 billion in total revenue. Most of that, maybe 75% of it is on products. So that's kind of the things that I described in the network encryptors, the handheld portable radios go to individual special operations units. There's a high-end encryption modems that go you get installed in like Blackhawks and F-18s and things like that. So that, that's the core of the product set within the government services. And they have what they consider to be the service line. While that's a catch-all, the vast majority of that is actually the connectivity side that they use their current satellite systems and also partner with others and resell it to the government. So that is about 200, call it 275 million. So tiny the addressable market just for America's DoD. I'm not even talking about the UK or Australia or anyone else within our NATO complex. It's four billion. Needless to say, there's a large runway from where they are today to where they can be. In case of people are kind of curious, like, okay, well, what does that actually mean? What does a connectivity service provider actually do for the DoD? Viasat specific line item is actually Air Force One, and Air Force Two, 
So they power our presidents when they fly around in Air Force One. Uh, they power the actual connectivity, encrypted, hardened connectivity that goes into State Department airplanes. That's one of their biggest contracts. They also do special operations connectivity to SOCOM. And I, obviously, I, I don't know specifically what that entails for obvious reasons, but they either use their current satellites or most likely given where special operations folks operate, they'll actually uh, buy or resell effectively connectivity from an Intel SAT or Inmarsat or SES, which are what I consider to be traditional mainline distributors of satellite connectivity around the world. And why that's important, because the YSA is trying to build a global constellation with their Viasat 3 constellation. Every time they, they cover a new part of the world, it actually opens up the opportunity to sell that connectivity to their defense partners. And as I outlined for you, if let's say the market is $4 billion just from the United States, our own DOD uses, uh, you can imagine that if Viasat has the contract to deliver connectivity because they happen to have the hardware that's doing it for that part of the military right now, they can just basically redirect connectivity to their own satellite. And now instead of paying, kind of reselling someone else's revenue, they'll get that all coming to them. That's, I think, if you want to talk about the markets that operate, that's kind of the military side. Then if you go to uh, connectivity services for broadband, so broadband in the U.S., there's probably, if you aggregate Hughes, which is the other main competitor to Viasat right now, and Viasat together, you're looking at somewhere around 2 million users. And then I'm just rounding. So there's 2 million satellite connectivity, satellites, uh, internet users. Elon believes that not only that market could be his, which I totally understand and agree with, but also on the periphery of DSL. What's really DSL? Like people, you know, use that term a lot, but the way that the government defines what's high-speed DSL is basically only 25 megabits per second download speeds. Most of us here in LA probably have somewhere around 100. The point is, the actual true addressable market for high-speed connectivity for the internet via satellite can actually be much greater. And I actually think that's one of the things that SpaceX truly gets, where it's not just about, hey, I'm in middle of nowhere, North Dakota, and I really need to connect and I'd like to connect in, on a fast way to the internet, but also they can pick off people on the periphery of larger cities and things like that. The point is the pie is so massive that if Leo is successful, that doesn't mean that Geo won't be. Okay? And I think that that's really what people misunderstand here. So they, they treat Viasat as some sort of weird short to the success of Elon. We fundamentally disagree, and again, we'll run around across some of the reasons why. But so, but yes, I mean, if you think of TAM for broadband connectivity as anyone who has subpar connectivity, that extends to a lot of people who are even in populated centers. And I think that's actually why Elon is building what he's building. He's not building it. He's going to start out with the rural because that's the proof point, right? And that's the easiest thing to say, like, hey, look, it's working, and these people are hungry and starved for this connectivity. But I think his overall goal is, is going to have to be, if he really wants to make this economic, to go after some of the DSL users that are actually CenturyLink, probably. It's easy to kind of get a quick sense that Viasat has been around for a very long time. In a lot of people's eyes, it could be seen as, I don't know, a dinosaur in the worst case, right? Compared to something like a SpaceX with reusable rockets that are launching these things up, 
Let's walk the listeners through why the disruption of Viasat might be very hard. Well, that's a great point that you made about Viasat being a dinosaur. And so um, let me just start there. Viasat isn't a dinosaur. It's actually on the, specifically on Geo. It's on the leading edge of Geo. And in fact, if Mark is correct about the, say, the fourth generation, because he's already said things like eight terabytes per satellite, it will be the equivalent of everyone's satellite currently in existence on um, Geo or being planned times, I'm going to say four. Just think about that. One generation four satellite will be that. The point is, Viasat continues to iterate and develop and leap ahead of all the competition that they have in Geo. I personally, this is our premise that if Geo was left alone and had no Leo competition, Viasat actually would eventually dominate and own 99% of it, would, unless you know, so we had some national champions that were kept around just because you know, France, France wanted to have their own or whatnot. But the technological progression there was such that they were starting to get to an inflection point of just opening up a wider and wider, uh, I guess, uh, evolutionary uh, advantage versus their competitors. Let's put it that way, right? Now, when you talk about comparing that to what Elon's doing of Leo, so one, you know, people need to understand the true difference between geostationary and low Earth orbit is the low Earth orbit side of Leo means that they're at like, you know, let's say 550 kilometers above the Earth, which means that the just physics, right, the speed of light travels a certain amount of time. And so you can get 25 millisecond latency. So just how fast it takes your uplink and then for it to hit the satellite and come back down as a downlink. So geostationary is much, 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 much higher up in space. And so that means that the average ping or the average uh, latency becomes somewhere around four to 600 milliseconds. Massively different. Is that really important though? It is if you're a Twitch streamer or a gamer or a heavy Zoom user. So if you were doing Zoom over Viasat service, we'd obviously have a lag and a delay, which is obviously is annoying. You could, you could do it, but you know, you'd have to pause and for split second and people don't like that. So there is a more uh, advanced use case for Leo that you know, Geo just cannot hurdle over right now. And it will never do so just because, again, physics being what it is, it is what it is, right? So I think that's really, we talk about the differentiators of Leo service versus Geo. That's what it comes down to. It's whether or not you're doing live video streaming. If you're not, if you're just consuming bandwidth when it comes to browsing around the internet or um, bringing up Netflix movies, YouTube, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's indiscernible in the way that they've kind of optimized the way that they cache things down at the, the modem level. It's not a big deal. Starlink is very focused on the, the lower Earth orbit or the LEO side of the business. Viasat has a lot of assets on the geostationary side of the business. Not that they don't have Leo as well, but they're primarily focused on geo. And is that harder to disrupt? They do not have a Leo connectivity solution that's consumer or business facing. They actually have a trial with the Air Force building Leo satellites for a maybe a military constellation but they do not have anything on the Leo side. They've been okay to, I think there's a plan. I think they have a 430 or something like that uh, satellite constellation that they could launch themselves. 
Um, but they have historically claimed that it doesn't make economic sense for them to do so. Their main reason why is because so geostationary is a singular satellite. There's not like a thousand of them. There's just one. Visat has two. Um, and eventually they'll maybe have like between six and 10. So that one satellite though can take its beams, just think of them as like spotlights and divide them up into many, many, many other tiny beams and then steer it. And this is the thing that you know, Mark pioneered, uh, steer that beam into the highest bandwidth of the demand area that, that, that they have. Which means that one satellite can effectively, if you sell it correctly, utilize you know ninety to ninety five percent of its overall capacity, right? So you have sitting up top, it doesn't move. It just says, okay, there's more demand over here, so I just steer the beam that way. Leo, by its design, is actually in, their satellites are much smaller. They're speeding across the sky, never ending, always you know orbiting the Earth or orbiting the Earth, and so. If you think about the flight path of a LEO satellite, most of the time it spends over uh, uninhabited parts of the world. Our world's 70% water, so it's beaming satellite connectivity to absolutely no one. We can get into like, the more technical aspects of what Elon has to hurdle over, but one of them being, if you're a LEO connectivity provider and you're trying to, let's say, provide connectivity to a plane or a ship in, in the middle of the Pacific, you can't. Even if you're over them, the reason why is because there's no way for you to beam the request by the user on the, on the ground or in the air, in this case, uh, back down to Earth and into the actual internet without having something called base stations. So in the middle of the Pacific, you can't have a base station because, well, there's nothing, there's no fiber, there's no, I mean, it's, it's impossible for you to connect. How do the airplanes then going over the ocean have Wi-Fi coming down, obviously from satellite with Viasat? How are they getting the... So because geo, just think of geo as a big flashlight, right? It's shining on this part of the earth. Well, that flashlight also sees base stations as opposed to LEO, which is much, much closer to the ground. And so its view angle is constrained to, you know, I don't know the specific sign of uh, starting this well, but Let's say it's constrained to like a 50 square mile radius, right? If it doesn't see a base station within its view angle, then it can't actually communicate with the internet, right? On that point, how much, in your estimation, does SpaceX truly pose a risk to Viasat? It sounds like they are going to really take over this rural total addressable market, if you will, for people who aren't connected to the internet. And you guys seem okay with that, right? That doesn't seem to encroach on Viasat's turf that much. I'm wondering, does SpaceX and Viasat actually benefit from each other in any way in this regard? So, a couple of things. One, I actually don't think that he's going to win. I said 2 million rural users. I actually don't think he's going to get to 2 million. I think probably 400,000 is what he's capable of really serving really well. If he, if he sticks to the 100 megabit per second download speeds and unlimited actual capacity, which I have a high... I don't think he'll do that. I think he'll actually amend the plans if it gets really successful um, and it'll degrade the service. Uh, how many satellites would that take also? Because he's talking about hundreds of satellites Four, going into this bit. I think 4,400 that he's now okay to do at about 550 kilometers will allow him to do about 400,000 to maybe, maybe 500,000 users in a quality service, right? I just want to have people understand. So because... The satellite is what it is, right? It's, it, 
fiber, you can have multiplexers that you can swap out and you can take one strand and then subdivide it into a thousand strands. And it's all done by both software and also hardware on the ground. And it's very like adaptive meaning like you could swap equipment out every month if you want, right? Leo satellites, you can't do that with. So once you launch them up there to refresh the entire system would take you a year to three years. Think of the satellite as like a fixed amount of bandwidth and you can take that bandwidth and slice it up and dice it up among a bunch of these users. But then you have to start making trade-offs between capacity and actual speed. So if you're in like right now, he's serving say, I don't know, 10,000 or 40,000 users and people love it. If you 10x that, can you have the same quality of service? Maybe. If you go 20x that, I don't think you can. It's physics, right? I mean, there's a certain amount of capacity that he has to use. He can divide it up among all the users. If there are too many users, then he has to degrade the quality of the services, kind of like our cell phone towers, right? If, you, if there's 10,000 people connected to one tower, it's going to be like you're on 2G. So it's the opposite of a network effect in that regard, right? It's ironically given the name, but it's like the more people using it, the less. That's exactly right. Which is why you know Elon has said like, "Hey, I'm gonna I want to get to forty thousand satellites." And why does he say that? It's not he's not saying it for like just for uh, for fun. It, he actually needs to have the density of those satellites in order to provide more the same service to more and more people. And because again, at any given point in time, if you're going to be a Starlink user, you're going to be maybe seeing two, maybe four satellites above you. And each of those satellites is small. And technically, you know, if you really want to get down to it, can serve maybe 500 people. So if you're in a rural area in Iowa with 20,000 people who really want connectivity, actually, physically speaking, he can't capture 100% of the market. I hope that makes sense. Like He'll do really, really well. But if he wants to get 100% of the market, he's going to have to degrade everyone else's connectivity, which would then make it be on par with or even worse than like what Hughes or Biasite can provide. So there's a limit to how much he can win, which goes back to our point, which is not a winner-takes-all pie. It's going to be Elon and Starling have this nice slice. Viasat has this slice. Hughes has this slice and declining. But they're, they're, they're going to win in some way, right? I think you also asked, like, can they help each other? There are network effects in the sense that He's actually his promotion machine is so great because he's advertising for satellite connectivity in general. And what is that going to do for providers like Viasat who can, let's say, they can subtuple the quality of their service over the next three years just by providing more and more bandwidth? I think they'll be able to ride on the coattails of you know this great PR machine that Starlink has and saying, hey. You know, if you want 100 megabits per second, we could also do that. And let's say that we don't, we're not going to charge you $500 for the equipment. We're going to charge you 25 or 50, maybe even give it to you for free. As well as a race to space, are we talking about a race to the bottom as well? Meaning that all this capacity coming from space in the near future, does that just like crush the price of internet? I mean, are we going to be paying any pennies for connectivity? And does that actually have a negative effect on these companies' revenue streams? Great, 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 great question. Think of it this way. I don't think the price of internet... Have you paid more for your internet since 1998? I don't think so. I think most people have paid between $50 and $120 for the longest time ever. And you can, you know, they'll run promotions, you'll threaten to switch over from Spectrum to Dish or whatever. 
But in the end, the price has been relatively the same. What's actually changed and plummeted is the price per bit delivered. And that's the key here. So when you think about who's going to win in the future, it's going to be the person with the lowest price per bit, because in the end, connectivity is a commodity. You don't care as a consumer, whether you're the military, well, maybe, no, I should caveat that, maybe- well, Encryption, bit. right? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, right. But let's say you're a maritime consumer or a backhaul consumer, or you're just a regular consumer at your house. If you don't care really who it is, you just want good service, you want the most of it, and you want it for the cheapest price possible. It's very simple. So what does that mean? That means that the folks in the satellite space with the lowest cost per bit are going to be the dominant players. And I, again, if you think about the overall capacity as you see this pie, your overall share of the revenue attached to that capacity will be your equivalent share of the capacity pie, right? I mean, if you're selling a commodity and there's really no differentiation, a bit is a bit, then your share of that pie will be dependent upon how good is your actual space tech. And so I think this is exactly why we believe that Viasat will provide a larger than current slice of the pie in the future. And also, I really do think that Musk and, and Starlink are correct. That pie will grow. And the more and more capacity and connectivity that there is up in the sky, the more and more use cases will show up. And then you'll start seeing crazy stuff like, oh, sensors around, you know, I, again, I'm just making things, things up like, Instead of building a wall, why don't we actually employ sensors for... for Does the Starlink have a vertical almost integration with Tesla vehicles that are obviously getting connectivity on the highways and stuff? Is that part of the benefit? And Is there an advantage that is going to benefit Tesla in some way from having yeah. these satellites in space? It's funny. Um, I believe that uh, Starlink had, has told its users, beta users, to please do not take the satellite dish and drive around with it on, on top of your truck or whatever, your Tesla, or we'll actually turn it off and take it from you. But that's ending, I'm going to say in June. And I think they put something out where they're going to allow their users to be mobile. Because I think, again, one of the sneaky things that he's going to do is I think he's, he will integrate the service in some way. I think that's how he thinks with Tesla. And it will be kind of like a, the, the, like the serious sort of, hey, I bought this car, it has serious radio already pre-installed. It'll be, hey, I bought this Tesla, I already has Starlink pre-installed. So, Meaning uh, like now you've got your full self-driving on the highway and now you've got Netflix streaming on your car perfectly. Exactly. And again, one, I think one of the limiters to truly having autonomous vehicles is connectivity and sensors. And so you know, if you're out in the middle of Arizona, your car needs to have some sort of waypoints that are pre-programmed and, and downloaded onto it and are, are, are adaptive. And I think the connectivity will, if you have a, a higher throughput connectivity solution, I think that will enable things like that. Like I said, there's things that higher end connectivity through space that we haven't even thought of that will mm -hmm. appear. And I think that's really the long-term business case for, for Starlink and Elon too. Speaking of Tesla, Ben, Tesla seems to be holding the crown for like the major ESG company on the public markets right now. But I've heard you say that Viasat is the ultimate ESG company. I would love to know why. Can you elaborate on that? I've said that a little bit facetiously, but think about it this way. So how many years ago did Google with their loon program where they're putting hot air balloons up in the air and trying to beam connectivity to poor areas where that, that weren't connected? 
or Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook saying that he was going to connect the world's poor and you know, Elon talking about it as well. Biaset is already doing that through their community Wi-Fi business. And so if you just look at what they're doing in Mexico, as Eugene described, they already have a profitable business that beams satellite connectivity to a central, basically little ground station. And then that Wi-Fi is then dispersed at the town square where people can actually use it. And these are people who have never had connectivity before. Calling it the ultimate ESG stock is, I think, a little bit overstated. But the truth of the matter is, you read all these articles about, oh, look, look at these great companies trying to connect people. Biaset is already doing that. And so they have a pilot in Brazil. They have a business in Mexico. They're already doing North Africa. When the two satellites come out in MIA and APAC, there's going to be an opportunity to connect millions, if not billions of people who, through their community Wi-Fi business, that have never had connectivity before. Right? So if you believe that a good way to raise people out of poverty, a good way for people to be connected to the world is to have internet connection, then Biosat is a really good social sustainability company. And it will also be a good business model for them because what what they're trying to do is they're trying to fill up the capacity. And so I think one of the things, and and Eugene's kind of touched on this, but one of the things that people are always looking for is they're looking for some silver bullet. They're like, well, what's the one thing you're going to do to fill up the capacity? With Viasat, it's everything. So they're putting up these three Viasat, three satellites, one over North America, one over APAC, and one over EMEA. APAC and EMEA, our sense is that they're going to be heavily weighted towards the military. If you just think about what our US military cares about, they care about what's going on in the Middle East and North Africa, and they care about what's happening in the Pacific. Listen, there's not going to be any Starlink with base stations in China. You're not going to put physical base stations in China. So you have to have a high throughput geo satellite if you want connectivity to our troops or our Marines or our Navy in the Pacific, right? And so the military's our sense is that it's going to take up a fair amount of the capacity in, in those satellites. But then there are just so many other ways to win, right? There's global in-flight Wi-Fi, which we haven't talked about. So Eugene already you know, made the joke about GoGo and how bad it is. If you fly JetBlue right now, you'll see a better experience than is anyone else is offering with the Viasat service. But that's, let's, let's be clear, that's the Viasat 2 satellite. When the Viasat 3 satellite is up in early 2022, you're going to see much better in-flight Wi-Fi. And it's going to just, our sense is that whatever Global Eagle and GoGo can offer, it's going to be not even anywhere near what Viasat can offer. But then when EMEA and APAC are up as well, those satellites, you're going to have global connectivity. So you're going to be able to fly from New York to Tokyo, and you're going to have connectivity, hopefully the whole time. You know, Obviously, there could be intermittent outages, but you're going to have, when, when, when the APAC satellite's up, you're going to be able to have connectivity the whole time. That is a business that doesn't exist today. No one who's flying from LA to Tokyo right now has connectivity. right? And so that's, if you, when you think about the TAM expanding, Viasat as, you know, it feel the dreams. Like if you build connectivity through in-flight Wi-Fi that's global, people will come. And so when you have in-flight Wi-Fi, you have some rural broad- broadband and you have the military and then you have community Wi-Fi, our sense is that they're going to have no issues filling up this capacity because use cases are going to be a come that, that, that haven't existed yet. And people who have never been connected will be connected. You asked us a question, it's like, well, is all this capacity coming out? I mean, I just read the charter call today. I mean, they're talking about, I think the average user for charter fixed broadband is like 700 gigs a month. And a lot of the users are now using over a thousand gigs a month. It is unbelievable the, the demand for bandwidth. And where's that coming from? It's coming from video. It's coming from gaming. I mean, think about it. 
people used to be watching TV. Now they're not. Now they're streaming everything. And you can't stream if you don't have an internet connection. And so what that's doing, and video is a high, takes a lot of bandwidth. So we just think that the total addressable market and demand for bandwidth is growing so much faster than any amount of capacity that Viasat can build. When they go internationally and do transatlantic, transpacific flights, those customers are sometimes two to four times more valuable than a domestic US customer. So the actual addressable market for in-flight connectivity could be... The moonshot would be a billion dollars, but I don't even think it's a moonshot because honestly, you're talking about that's probably six and a half thousand tails, 6,000 tails. And they're, they're already on track to get to two and a half thousand from what we can see today. And that's without the APAC connectivity in place. That's without most of the you know, African, subcontinent, African continent in place and without any of the Indian Ocean passages. So the actual numbers here are so immense that that's the, actual, the true business case for Viasat to continue to build these things. And I will add that for the equivalent consumer, I would rather have a thousand tails than half a million consumers. The reason why those thousand tails... Tails meaning... So meaning planes. So a thousand planes, I'd rather have that than four or 500,000 consumers because those four to 500,000 consumers have a natural churn of about two and a half to three and a half percent. The planes have zero. So the actual cost to get the same profitability levels for inside Wi-Fi are that much greater than having a consumer broadband business. And, and by the way, Starlink and Elon, they know this. They're not going to just let other people take this market. They will get there eventually, I believe. I think they'll be a longer... It's going to be it'll take them longer than I think they think. They have to have FAA clearances to get their equipment on board. Actually, don't, I don't think they have a, um, air mobile ready antennas currently developed. So the point is, like, for the addressable market for Viasat and their, their growth trajectory on the like, activity side itself could make this company into a, call it a $5 billion or $6 billion entity just by itself without having any of the military or commercial aero side or commercial residential side. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. 
So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Let's talk a little bit about the risks involved because you mentioned all of this capacity coming online. I mean, you mentioned Starlink's tens of thousands. I think you said 40,000 satellites going up into space. My tiny human brain is making this assumption like that sounds like a lot of satellites and that's going to clutter our skies and there's inherent risks to that. If I step back, it's probably like space is infinite. The world is very large. That's probably negligible in the grand scheme of things. Is there any risk to putting this much material up into our stratosphere, basically? Well, it depends who you talk to. So obviously, Starlink and Kuiper... Um, they say no with a caveat. The caveat being you need to have good, uh, what they consider space junk management schemes. And you need to have good like collision avoidance systems and be really good at tracking things. Um, and j- just to clarify though, for your uh, listeners, so Elon has, uh, I think 4,400 is the FCC okay number. It, it's not 40,000. So he wants to eventually get there, but um, that we'll take another round of regulatory approvals and years and years of study and blah, blah, blah. So I think for what he can accomplish today, they'll still be very impressive, but it's not going to be 40,000. One of the things that people push back on them on was like, well, if there's a collision, uh, you might actually cause this cascading effect of just destruction in space. Because if you can't, if you have so many things crossing... The domino effect, right? Exactly. You you might actually, and this is Kessler syndrome, actually a term for it where a satellite that's out of control that causes 
one collision can actually cause an infinite number of collisions. And then that space junk that is left behind that you can't control anymore will basically make the, that band of the Earth's atmosphere inoperable for all satellite connectivity or solutions in general, which would be really, really bad because you know it's not just about SpaceX, right? We have the International Space Station there. We have um, you know, various other countries have their own satellites, whether it's spy satellites or whatever it may be, um, orbiting there. So you have to think about the world, not just yourself. So there, there's certainly, um, there are risks there, but you know, at least our FCC has deemed it irrelevant when it comes to Starlink because they uh, literally this week approved the 4,400 to go up. And so that will happen. I mean, there are many other, I think, risks in general and the 4400, once it operates for a couple of years, and if they can show that it's safe, then I think the, the regulators may relax a little bit. But I think up until that point, you know, you still have, I'm going to guess, four to five years before they uh, allow him to do anything more than what they have right now on the docket. All right. And I've heard you talk about the government side of the business for Viaset and that it could make up as much as $46 a share. Just on its own, you know, and obviously the stock's currently just in the low 50s. So that's a lot. That's the majority of the share price right now. But, you know, I'm curious the assumption sounds like Starlink is not going to come after that business, mainly because Viasat has this really long standing relationship with the government and that its encryption technology is very strong. But all of those things sound like kind of, if I'm thinking about Elon Musk and his relationship with the government, as well as his ability in the to you know create encryption in other ways or advanced technology in other ways, that doesn't sound that defensible to me. If he's coming after it, do you guys look at him as a risk for coming after that government business at all? I don't think that he's going to go into the hardware side. There's actually a ton. The moat there is much greater than I could even possibly describe because. It's not just like you're making hardware, right? Because you're going into a highly regulated environment where you have to have NSA type one certifications for a lot of the equipment. So these aren't like, oh, let me just slap together something and you know, uh, commercial off the shelf it, and voila, you know, I have a, a government contract. These are these are boxes that have been pre-cleared and tested with uh, a lot of the alphabet agencies and NSA being the primary one that allow for hardened jam-resistant communications in the middle of war. And trust me, the military doesn't move quickly when it comes to changing over providers because if someone's coming along saying, like, I can do this better, in the end, you have to prove that you can operate in that hostile environment. And what Biaset has is three decades worth of proving that they're able to operate in those hostile environments within an encryption, decryption, and compression algorithm that allows for high, incredibly high throughput uh, amounts of data to go through uh, the typical warfighter's hands. I'm not worried. I would put the chances of him getting to the product space at zero. I think, obviously, connectivity... Again, I, I don't want people to think like I'm naysaying Starlink in, in any way. I, I do believe wholeheartedly that he will provide some connectivity for certain government solutions going forward. Again, just from the GAO report, I mentioned it's $4 billion today, right? That market. So again, can Viaset win 20% of it and get $800 million revenue from their current 275 I think so. Can SpaceX get their share? I also think so. There's enough here to go around. Let's put it that way. 
in the end, they serve different use cases. And that's really important to understand. You know, uh, again, if you're a geostationary provider and they need connectivity for whatever reason, you know, uh, in the middle of uh, the Southeast, you know, South China Sea, I'm going to guess that you're going to get the call and not the Leo person because the Leo doesn't have secured, I guess, offload points or no gateways that the DoD would trust. I know people's like, oh, well, he's going to put, you know, floating barges in the middle of the Pacific. Okay. You try to sell that to an admiral who's like, wait a minute, I'm going to be reliant on something that could be sunk with a submarine. How, explain that to me again. So anyway, there are a lot of advantages that Vice has, has to protect itself from the defense side. And honestly, they're a drop in the bucket right now when it comes to the connectivity revenue from the DoD. And, and I still believe people totally miss that point. They completely don't understand how competitively uh, positioned they are um, for the future with the caveats and being that they need to have the global satellite network up. So those two uh, ones that, that come... And that's the, the Viasat 3 constellation. Yeah. And when is the debut of that? Like when, is the, when should we expect that to be in the sky? The first one, which goes over in North and South America, effectively the, Amer- the American satellite comes up in... Well, the launch should be, they say, Q1, calendar Q1 of 2022. So call it eight months from now, seven to eight months from now. And then you should start seeing revenue within 12 months. And in your opinion, the market is just not pricing that in. Uh-huh. No, not at all. In fact, this has been the history of Visat stock. You know, we've owned this in different sizes for six years. And in between the first satellite and the second satellite, actually caused by SpaceX because SpaceX was going to be the launch provider for Viasat 2. And if you guys recall, they had an issue with a couple of the rockets blowing up. And so they canceled all launches for like four months until they figure out what was going on with the rocket systems, which caused this massive backlog of satellites companies who had to be pushed to the very back of someone else's line. So Viasat contracted out with Ariane Space to do their second launch and had to wait an extra year and a half effectively. So, and then that lull, that's when the initial shorts came out and Carousel did a great piece and, you know, attacked it at exactly the right time. And people said, oh my God, this is a terrible company. You know, they'll never grow because their rural broadband is getting eaten by 4G and whatever. The 4G was the boogeyman back then. And so we suffered for two years like idiots. And then the satellite was launched and revenue started increasing and the cash flow started coming through. And all of a sudden they went into the 90s. And I think the same thing is happening right now, really. I mean, it's just Starlink is the new boogeyman. The, but that boogeyman is, is much scarier because he has a better, much better PR. And so I think we believe that there is a good buy point even today for someone who has you know, longer than a two-quarter time horizon and can wait out the volatility. Uh, we believe that they will be rewarded with, with a much higher stock within the next two years. Got it. And, you know, Gwen Shawell, I was mentioning the COO of SpaceX, has mentioned that, you know, obviously their core focus with Starlink is consumer based. But she also mentioned that while SpaceX might not be a company that makes sense to go public, Starlink could be, meaning they could spin that off potentially and take Starlink public. So I have to ask if that were to happen, is that a stock that you guys would be looking at pretty closely and, and even investing in? It depends on what the price is. I mean, we're, we're cheapskates and value guys that, you know, we have a problem with uh, cracking open the wallet and paying for growth. I will say that 
I almost guarantee you that if Starlink were to go public, there would be an immediate long short trade where people would go long Starlink and short uh, the traditional providers, which unfortunately I think why I said would be lumped into that mix. It would be to people's detriment, but I think that that would be the natural thing that someone would do. I highly doubt that they'll do this in terms of the separating it out because I do, uh, I like Elon and his like chutzpah, you know, his ability to, to like just make things, will things to happen. But one of the things that, you know, I think one of his core beliefs is he needs to go to Mars. He can't raise the money to go to Mars without Starlink as part of SpaceX. No one's going to give SpaceX money to go build a cool little rocket ship to go take right. it. Starlink is his AWS kind of exactly, feature. Exactly. Exactly. I think Starlink is going to fund his other adventures in space. And I think he totally understands that point. And I don't know why they would separate out the companies. It doesn't make sense from a fundraising perspective. There's no way Starlink is making money right now. Now, that does, hasn't stopped anybody from going public, especially if there's a SPAC involved. But let's just think about it this way. To be a Starlink subscriber, it is like $99 a month and then $500 for the dish. We've seen estimates for the dish that you put on your house of you know, two to $3,000 in cost. So they're selling it to you for $500 and they're paying two to $3,000 just for that. Plus, their cost of their satellites, which we haven't even talked about, is astronomical, especially as it, like on a per bit basis compared to what Biosat can get for the Biosat 3 constellation. So my guess is that Starlink is bleeding. And now, I mean, just like with, with Biosat, there will be an inflection point at some point if they get enough users. Let's talk about that and not making money, right? And let's talk about the Viasat financials because they are also not making earnings at the moment and their free cash flow has been pretty abysmal. And I don't know if that has to do with the acquisition you mentioned, but talk us through how we should think through Viasat's financials and where the earnings are going to turn around. Looking at the income statement is difficult. I think you have to focus on the cash flow statement. And as Eugene always says, you have to look at cash flow from operations because they're going to continue to spend on satellite capex because Mark Dankberg and the team see this gigantic opportunity to basically revolutionize, again, the geostationary world and to, as we've talked about, increase the total addressable market by providing connectivity that didn't used to exist. So right now, we're literally near the bottom of their financials because in-flight Wi-Fi has been crushed by COVID, right? Nothing having to do with them. They've been spending a ton on R&D to finish the Biosat 3 constellations. And I guess they're already spending a little bit on Biosat 4. But if you just think about a satellite, you build it, and you look the most levered and the least profitable the day before it launches. And then it launches and you get to reap the benefits. So it's just like a piece of real estate, right? You build a building and you have all this debt and you have no revenue until you start to lease it up. So think about that. And so basically, over the next you know, 18 to 24 months, they're going to launch three satellites. They've already spent the majority of the CapEx for the Viasat 3 constellation. And so you're going to see a cash flow inflection point happen in our estimation very quickly. And so here's what's really important about that. With just Viasat 1 and Viasat 2 up, they weren't particularly self-funding, right? They would have to take on debt in order to build a Viasat 3 complex. Now, when those three satellites are up, and if they're as successful as we think they can be, Viasat will be self-funding from then on, and we'll be able to fund this device up in the four constellation over time without taking on equity or debt. They've just been a little bit subscale because remember, as Eugene said, they got into the connectivity business in 2011. 
This was a core military encryption company until Mark Dankber decided that they could completely disintermediate the traditional geo world. And so I think they benefit significantly from having more scale, more total free cash flow to be able to fund whatever adventures, whether that's a Leo constellation for the government, whether it's their own Leo constellation for consumer broadband, they're going to have the cash flow. But our point is that you're just not going to see it right this moment. And so really, as Eugene said, people underestimate, have underestimated Mark Dankworth at every turn, like they have to Elon, with Elon to some degree. But you're going to see, in our estimation, the cash flow turn around, the leverage come down, and the profitability rise significantly as these satellites are launched. And that's going to, in our estimation, change people's perception of the stock. Well, this is what I love about you guys, because you know, of all the value investors I know, you guys are in these trenches. And I've just loved watching you guys with Lumen and now with Viasat. I mean, these are companies... like If, if I use my own tool on our TIP Finance website, it's not very compelling, right? The free cash flows on this thing are pretty negative. And without doing a ton of research like you guys have, it's not something I would even probably consider. But you guys seem to be well positioned for these turnaround moments where these things like you mentioned, unlocking the value. And that's really what it is. It's this game of with value investing, right? Is we're doing this research to unlock this hidden value that the market isn't seeing. And so I really highly weight your opinion, especially you, Eugene, because you have so much experience with this company in particular. But with all that said, I have to wonder how your experience might bias your opinion on this. You're very close to this company. And I'm wondering, on the flip side of buying, what would convince you guys to sell Viasat? What would you see and be looking for to say, okay, this is the time to let it go? I think that's a fantastic question. We have a robust, we call it a devil's advocate process. So typically, a position has two longs and one short, and we assign people the short. So you have to come up with every single reason under the sun that our key variables on the long side will not happen. And you have to bring evidence-based data to back up your assertions, right? And so luckily, in Viasat's case, it's not two long, one short. It's, It's only one long, and then everyone else short. So I'm 150% aware of my own ingrained bias. I do, and I, I'm the first one to admit, so you, you, know, you, you I think you described yourself as a Elon fanboy. I'm a Mark Dankberg fanboy because I worked for the man and I understand the culture within Viasat. I love that company. I truly do. I have nothing but good things to say about it. And I, the first person to admit that I am 100% biased. You can be a fanboy, but as long as you look for this confirming evidence, that's how you maintain rational sanity. And Ben and, and Jeff and Andrew, another one of our colleagues, they keep me grounded constantly. I will say that over the course of the last two years, what's really changed is I took the probability of Elon's success from like a 30% chance to 100. And I adjusted our model, the assumptions of like residential broadband growth and revenue contribution from it accordingly, right? Because again, I don't want to have my head in the sand. I mean, this man is doing great things. He's literally building a massive network that has never been seen from scratch. And he's there. He's already built it. It's not building, he's built it. So I don't want to be, you know, saying like, oh well, you know, that's not going to affect my asset. Of course it will. You would be a maniac to say that it, it, there won't be some knock-on effects, right? And so certainly the residential broadband space, there will be. And I think we've 
and our adjusted expectations have encapsulated that. When would we sell it? You know, there's always a price, right? I think it is a compounder. I think every single day it gets more valuable. But if I woke up tomorrow and I don't know, something happened and then all of a sudden it's worth $200 a share. I don't know. I mean, we're small cap investors. It's probably inappropriate for us to own something that's $15 billion or $20 billion anyway. So that's one way that it exits the portfolio. Another way is we are shown through data, factual data, that we're incorrect in our assumptions on in-flight Wi-Fi growth, that we are incorrect in our assumptions on the defense side growth, and we are incorrect in our assumptions on their defensibility in the residential broadband. If that starts happening, I'm going to be like, okay, totally wrong. I'm sorry. I apologize to our clients and take our medicine. But until that happens, until that the data comes in that disconfirms what we believe to be the growth trajectory here, there is no reason to sell it because, again, I really do believe this is a compounding machine. It's not a gram. It's not a point-to-point trade. You touched on one of the reasons to sell might be potentially one reason that I love referencing, which is getting tomorrow's price today. So let's talk a little bit about that and close out there with your sort of overall intrinsic value assumption. We think of uh, typically underwrite things in three-year chunks. The really annoying thing here is COVID, besides the in-flight Wi-Fi issue, it delayed the launch by now it's coming up to almost a year. Um, supply chain issues because people are just literally not being able to be at work or you know getting sick and so having to close down their clean rooms and things like that. Also, the supply chain was disrupted. I mean, it, it really delayed things immensely. But from here, if we just assume a normal cadence and them launching this, the EMEA one six months after the, this first America's one, and then the APEC one another six to nine months after the EMEA one, we believe that over the next three years, you could see a upside of somewhere between $120 and $150 a share. The intermediate level, I would say, once the America's one is launched and the um, revenue profile starts adjusting to the new revenue opportunities that they've set up for the America's one, we believe that the intermediary stock will be in the 80s. And then you will get the, the full upside over the next year and a half after that, following the EMEA launch. Because EMEA, that revenue will be de novo revenue, meaning like they have America's revenue right now, right? And so whatever they can get as additional revenue on the America side, which you can argue like, well, let's say they're not going to get as much on residential and they're just going to be defensive. It'll be, it won't be actual real grower, which I think are fair points. But on the EMEA side, it'll literally be like brand new, like, you know, oh my God, they all of a sudden you wake up and they have an extra $250 million of revenue flowing through. And then, you know, you, you will see the, the bump up in, in cash flow from operations. And then that's actually the inflection point. Um, you'll start seeing them generate free cash flow. And I think once that happens, it'll still solve the problem of what everyone points out, which is, hey, look at these guys. They've been, you know, building these things. That's fantastic. But how do we know that they're actually successful? Because in the end, there's been no free cash flow generated. And I think once the MEA one is up, the CapEx should normalize somewhere around six to $800 million is our assumption. And you'll start generating a decent amount of free cash flow and it'll actually deliver and allow them to do other things, whether it's add-on acquisitions or, or you know, returning it, uh, cash flow to shareholders in some way. So I think that's kind of um, the progression of the upside and that we're assuming. Fantastic. 
Well, Ben, Eugene, I always enjoy talking with you guys and digging in deep on these picks because it's just fascinating. And I mean, there's just something so exciting about this race for space we're witnessing and alive for today. And I'm going to really enjoy the progress of both Starlink and Viasat. So before we let you go, I want to make sure we give a handoff to Cove Street, any of your social platforms or any other resources you guys want to highlight. We definitely are out there. We're not some opaque hedge fund that doesn't talk about our positions. We're happy as, as we talked about with Lumen with you and Viasat here. Um, so if you go to our website, site, copestreetcapital.com and go to our thoughts tab, you can see any number of interviews and discussions that Eugene and I have had. If you're on Twitter, I've reemerged on Twitter over the last uh, six months and um, you can find me, the inoculated investor, pretty active on, on Twitter as well. We approach everything with a fair amount of humility. And we understand that with both Lumen and Viasat, we are making very contrarian statements that other people may have very applicable and coherent questions about. And so we're always happy for people's feedback. So reach out to us, find us on the website and reach out to us if you have feedback or questions, because we're always interested in people's perspective, especially if they, you know, they, they, you know, they know these companies or these industries well, we will we will incorporate our, you know, their information into our own mosaic as well. All right, gentlemen. Thank you again for coming on the show. Hope to do it again soon. Thank you, Trey. Really appreciate Thank the time. Trey. All right, everybody. That's all we had for you for today's episode. If you're loving the show, definitely don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app and follow me on Twitter as well, at Trey Lockerbie. Lastly, I'd be remiss if I didn't remind you to check out the TIP Finance tool. Just Google TIP Finance and it should pop right up. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.